Well, last uh, session we were going through the Bible. We got up to chapter 18 of First Samuel. So this morning we're going to finish First Samuel and go into Second Samuel. Um, but before we do that, let's just come before the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, as we come before you now, Lord, we want to humble ourselves before your word. Lord, we recognize that your word is living and powerful. And that, Lord, your word can change us. And, Lord, help us to see the difference between that which is spiritual and that which is fleshly. And, Father, particularly as we look at this wonderful account that we have in your word of the lives of Saul and the lives of David. Lord, help us to see, Lord, the paths that we could choose to follow. Lord, David's path was a path full of mistakes and errors. But Lord, he was a man after your own heart. He sought to do your will. And Saul was a man who did not humble himself before you, but went his own way. And Father, help us to see our own lives pictured here. So Father, teach us this morning, we pray. Lord, lay these things upon our hearts and help us to to see our own lives reflected in your word. But, Lord, more importantly, not just to understand these things, but to see a change. Lord, we pray you just do a work in us by your grace. Lord, teach us now, we pray, through your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the books of First and Second Samuel, as we have them in our Bibles today, um, really it's just one continual narrative. And they form six books, as we have them in the English Bible, um, which are grouped under the, the pre-exile history. Um, so we've had First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then First and Second Chronicles. First and Second Samuel, we see the lives of Samuel, Saul, and David uh, laid out before us. And as we go into um, the First and Second Kings. We get a little bit there of David's reign. Uh, Forty years David was king and then Solomon becomes obviously the king that follows on from David, David's son. And then we find that the kingdom is divided. And that's what we find the, the book of First uh, and Second Kings really start to deal with, which leads us right up to the Assyrian and then the Babylonian captivity, the divided kingdoms. The northern kingdom goes first to Assyria, and then the southern kingdom, also referred to as Judah, goes off to Babylon. And we'll see that as we journey through. First and Second Chronicles, um, in a sense, we have a, uh, a recap um, looking at the southern kingdom, specifically Judah. So kings, the books of kings, tend to look at the, the events that took place from the perspective of the northern kingdom, Israel. Chronicles does the same thing, covers a lot of the same ground, but it looks at it from a different angle, from the angle of the, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. So we'll look at that over the, the coming weeks. But as I said, we got as far as chapter 18, so just a brief recap before we get into it. Um, if you remember, um, Saul has... Um, seen this young boy David come to the fore. He's gone out and killed uh, Goliath, this incredible foe that had set himself up against the armies of Israel. No one else wanted to go, but David comes confident in God, not in his own strength, goes and takes these five stones out of the brook and then goes and slays Goliath. And we talked about that last time. And so we're going to pick up verse 6 of First Samuel 18 where it reads, It came to pass as they came when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul. Now, I'm sure King Saul was really pleased with this. He's getting honoured. He's the king. And they come with tabrets, with joy, with instruments of music. So there's a great celebration going on. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands. And you can imagine Saul kind of freeing himself, you know, yes, that's me. 
But then they said, and David, his ten thousands. And that was a real problem for Saul. And we read verse 8, and Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands. To me, they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. So this is this turning point, as it were, for Saul. Now remember that Saul had already been told by Samuel that he was going to lose the kingdom. Because of his disobedience, because of his unfaithfulness, God was going to take the kingdom away from Saul and to give it to someone, as Samuel had told Saul, who would be a man after his own heart. So Saul has been on the lookout. From that moment, who is this person going to be? And suddenly... This young boy that had come and the played instruments before him, that had now come to the fore and slain this Philistine, it looks like this is going to be the one. So Saul now is very, very closely watching what David does. And we're going to see as we go forward, Saul now will make seven specific attempts to try and kill David. We read of the first of those. In 1 Samuel 18.10, it came to pass on the morrow. This is just the very next day. That, that the evil spirit from the Lord, and we were talking about this at Bible study during the week, uh, this isn't a spirit of God, not a, an angelic spirit that is serving God in obedience, but a, a fallen angelic spirit um, that is from God, departed from. Um, this angelic, this demonic spirit, if you like, um, comes from God upon Saul, and he prophesied in the midst of the house, and David played with his hand, as at other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast a javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice. So on two occasions this happens. You'd think that Saul's uh, aides and uh, people that look after him would realise, don't leave Saul alone with the javelin. But they they didn't, and they end up with these two occurrences where David is uh, almost killed. As a result of all these things, though, and David's popularity with the people, David is promoted to be the head of the army. And Saul also then gives Michael to David as wife. Now all of these, whilst they look like David is in favour with the king, they were also a very subtle attempts by Saul to get David killed in any way that he possibly could. And we find that with uh, um, giving his wife, giving uh, Micah his daughter uh, to David's wife, the intention was that there was this uh, dowry that was uh, set up, um, and if David would go and try and attack the Philistines, which he was commissioned to do, that David might get killed in the battle. Well, obviously that doesn't happen. It kind of backfires uh, on Saul because we find that this, this daughter of uh, Saul's really loves David as well at this point. From 19, chapter 19 through to 21, then, we start to see David's flight from Saul as things start to get worse for David. See, David has gone through this experience as a, a boy on the hills of Bethlehem, growing up, writing many of the Psalms that we love and we read, um, seeing God deliver him from the bear, from the lion, all these wonderful things, just learning more about God, being brought before the king, getting to serve in the king's court, then getting to have this opportunity of victory over the Philistine. Everything looks so set. And suddenly, David's world starts falling apart. Saul, first of all, instructs Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. So that's really our third attempt, um, third specific attempt. Um, Jonathan temporarily manages to pacify Saul, and Saul kind of backs down. But as we go on, Saul then, as I said, gives Michael uh, his daughter to David as wife. 
as we said, hoping the Philistines will kill David. That's the fourth specific attempt that we have chronologically as they go through. There's another javelin attack that we find of uh, as well, the fifth. Then Saul uh, sends to take David. Um, uh, and this is again another attempt where David, uh, is, his life is in threat from Saul and from Saul's troops that go after him. But on this occasion, Saul's daughter hears the plot. She warns David and she helps David to escape through the window. And they lay uh, this kind of uh, figure, this statue in bed. And they put some goat's hair on it uh, to make it look like a, a kind of human, look like David. I mean, it makes you wonder the quality of David's hair if it could be mistaken for a goat's hair. But uh, we'll leave that to, uh, to there. Um, and as a result of this, eventually they come in and Saul uh, is told no he can't come he's really sick so he says I don't care just bring him on the bed and maybe so they start to pick up the bed and they realize that he's a lot heavier than he should be uh, they realize that David's not there that this image or the, whatever is in the covered over the covers in the bed is just this statue that's there and by now David has escaped through the window I and mean, this is just put yourself in David's position at this point everything seems to be going so well and now the king is trying to kill him and he's having to escape, leave his wife, leave his home, leave everything he has, everything he knows, and run away in the middle of the night, effectively. Well, Saul, we find, will then pursue David to this place, Naoth. Uh, David manages to escape from there, and he goes to see Jonathan. And, of course, the question he asks Jonathan is, what have I done? Why is it that Saul, the king, your father, wants to kill me? Jonathan says, I'm sure that he doesn't, this isn't going to happen, I've already spoken to him before, and no harm's going to come to him, because he would have told me, surely. Well, as David points out to Jonathan, he's not going to tell you, because he knows we have this relationship, and you tell me. Jonathan himself says, why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. But of course, it clearly was. And We just see, when a, a soul is out of touch with God... He'll even try to deceive those closest to him. I think there's a lesson that we can learn there. That Saul was quite happy to deceive Jonathan, to make Jonathan seem things were okay. And yet, all along, he wanted to kill David. You know, when we're out of touch with God, there's no limit to what we will do to try and cover over our own iniquity. Well, Jonathan then proposes a test, and David agrees. And as a result of this, uh, we find... David then is absent from this festival, uh, this new moon feast that he should have been at the king's table. He's not there. Saul then even attempts to kill Jonathan. At this point, Jonathan starts to think that maybe David's concerns are true. And then David flees to this place, this city uh, called Nob, which was a city where the priests uh, dwelt at that time. Um, later, actually, Saul will come to this place and he'll kill 85 priests and turn on the city. He kills men and women and children. This just shows you how the, the human um, heart is so corrupt and so wicked. And without God's grace, you realise what a, a wicked, horrible person each of us would be. It's, I think it's Oswald Chambers that makes the comment that there's not one criminal in the world who in actuality is any worse than any of us are in possibility. What he's saying is that we all have the potential. And although you look at some things, you think, that's horrible, I'd never do that. Well, without God's grace, we'd all be just as depraved, just as sick, because we've got this inbuilt nature of sin. Uh, and sin will just keep taking us further and further and further away from God's standards. You realize how much we need a saviour. 
But as a result of this, David now flees. Uh, David had gone and seen Samuel as a result of all this as well. But he now flees and goes to Achish, the king of Gath of all places. This is a Philistine king. And David now goes to this king. Now there is a bit of conjecture as to why he goes there. Some suggest that maybe Achish and Goliath had been rivals. Achish, um, this king of one of the five Philistine cities, very prominent position he has. Maybe Goliath was looking for that role himself. And now that Goliath's out of the way, possibly this would explain why David kind of wins his favour uh, with Achish. That's what certainly some of the commentators suggest. Um, but whatever the reason, David goes there, but he gets it and realises this wasn't a good thing. He's now way behind enemy lines as such, and he's in trouble. And so David pretends he's mad. And this is a, a terrible moment in his, uh, his uh, experience, in his life. This is then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, you see, the man is mad. Wherefore have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen, that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Well, we find that Psalm 34, the header for that psalm, says, A psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. So this is a really dark moment uh, in David's experience. Uh, We'll look at this in just a moment. Um, We read, Then David departed thence and escaped to the cave's Adullam. So David now on his own. And we're in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel at this point. But at this point, Psalm 142, uh, we find, is given a psalm of instruction. Let's just look at that in just a moment. But this is we're told a prayer when he was in the cave. Now, David has gone from a great position to suddenly everything being stripped away. And now he's kind of almost run out of places to, to run to and to hide. And he's left in this cave now all on his own. And as we see, he starts off alone, but... We're going to see that he's joined by his family to start with. And then he's joined by all those who are disgruntled by Saul's reign. And gradually this number starts growing. He starts with 400, it's going to increase to 600, and it grows from there. But let's look at Psalm 142. You get a, a flavour of what David was going through. He said, I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. In the way wherein I walked, have they privily laid a snare for me. I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. This is a desperate situation. You know, and you and I, in our lives, we get to those moments where our spirits are overwhelmed. We just can't make sense of our circumstances. It may be through bereavement. It may be through financial loss. It may be through insecurity from one or another number of possibilities. But we can become in those, come to those places where we are literally just overwhelmed and we just don't know what to do. Well, David was right here at this point and he cries out to God and he says, Lord, I'm on my own. Nobody is with me. Nobody understands. But then he says, verse five, and this is the lesson for all of us. I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. You see, everything else has been stripped away now. David has nothing. He's learned not to rely on himself. He's got nothing left. And he's saying, Lord, you're my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me 
from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. As this psalm carries on, it just lifts this crescendo at the end. As he's looking forward now, not in despair, not looking to his own ability, but looking to what God will do in his life. Well, we find that as David is joined by this number in the cave, that he moves on from here. And he comes to this place um, called uh, Kela. And this is an interesting situation because this town itself comes under attack from the Philistines. And David seeks the Lord and comes to deliver them. He asks God, should I go? And of course, it's what we, should, we always seek God. This is one of the big differences we find between Saul and between David. David always goes to the Lord and says, Lord, what should I do? Well, the Lord says, go and deliver them. So he does. And he delivers them from the attack of the Philistines. But Saul hears that David is there and makes his way there to go and capture him. Well, once again, David goes to the Lord. And he says, Lord, should I stay? What's going to happen? And the Lord says to him, Lord, David, if you stay, the people of Kali are going to give you up. And they're going to hand you over to Saul. So as a result of this, David then flees down the country, down to this place called En Gedi, uh, which is in southern Israel, uh, just on the side of the Dead Sea. Well, again, Saul now pursues David to this point also. We read, it came to pass that when Saul was returned from following the Philistines, it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel, and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep coats by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to cover his feet, and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. So there's a number of caves at this place. We'll show you some pictures in a moment. Um, and David and his men are hidden in the back of one of these caves. And Saul happens to go in to this very particular cave. You see how God sets this whole event up. This is a, a picture just looking at the area at Qumran, just a little bit up the coast from there. You can see over the back here, this is the, the Dead Sea uh, that's going across the back here. But you see it's a very desert uh, region, nothing growing at this point. But you go a little bit further down and you come to this place, En Gedi, and you see these wonderful trees and this growth of vegetation and these waterfalls. And it's a lovely place. You can see why David uh, fled to this place. But as you go here and you look up at the sides of the mountains, there's these caves within the rocks. Some of them very hard to, to get to, they're very high up. Uh, but this would be an ideal place for David to remain for this time. And clearly there's water for them to drink, to bathe, to wash and everything else. Well, it's while he's in one of these caves. And uh, again, just to give you an idea. So this is um, Jerusalem is up here. And then we have the Sea of Galilee up the top here. But then the Dead Sea down here. And then En Gedi right in the middle here. Uh, around the coast, that's where David's hiding. And as he's in this cave, um, the men of David say, look, there's Saul, this is your chance. Well, there's another great lesson for us in this. Because while Saul is in the cave, David then comes down with a knife in his hand. And he manages to cut the robe, or the bottom of uh, Saul's robe, uh, to cut the hem of the garment. And presumably, from the account, Saul would have laid his robe down to the side somewhere. So David's able to quietly just cut this uh, bottom piece of the robe and comes back. And clearly the men are a little bit, why didn't you kill him? You had this opportunity, you could have killed him. And David says, no, I'm not going to do that. And of course, if you think about it, how would that have really helped David in the long run? Because if David had killed this king, and then David had become king, what kind of president would it have set for David's reign? 
You see, we see a number of times in Scripture people that kill kings to become themselves king, and then they themselves are also assassinated. And of course, David, no doubt thinking about the future as well here, but also mindful that Saul was the one that God had appointed as king. And David makes the point that he wouldn't stretch forth his hand against God's anointed, the one that God has chosen for this role. Romans twelve nineteen summarizes it nicely and says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's down to God, and David was leaving this situation in God's hands, and yet he still takes this part of the robe off. But afterwards we're told, David's heart smote him. And you think, well, why? All he's done is just cut a bit of his coat off. Well, it's because of what he did. And what he did was to take the hem of the garment. As we've seen already, hems represent, signify the authority uh, they did for the priests. The priests had these pomegranates and bells around their robes. And just like military personnel have the stripes on their uniforms to signify their rank. Well, so the hem of the garment for Jews was very symbolic. And again, um, the woman with the issue of blood, she reaches out to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. Why? Because she recognizes his authority. Well, David here, in this public act, is rejecting Saul's authority. And of course, Saul leaves the cave. David then shouts after him and his men. And they realize. But David's heart is smoked because he realizes that what he's done is to reject publicly Saul's authority. But then he repents of it. He tells his men he shouldn't have done this thing. But then we carry on chapter 25. And we read as Samuel died and all the Israelites were gathered together and lamented him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. One of David's kind of real true friends, in a sense, um, this old man, Samuel, who had been, no doubt, uh, certainly for part of the time, a mentor to David, but very much a mentor in the early days for Saul. And this judge, this last of the, the judges of Israel, uh, now dies. A very sad moment for the nation. David, still fleeing at this point then from Saul, Saul now, still after David, arrives in the area where a man called Nabal lives. The man's name Nabal just means fool, and we see that he was. But David and his men at this point are in need of sustenance. They need supplies to help them, um, to survive, to eat, to drink. Um, and whilst they'd been out in the wilderness areas and things, they'd already uh, cared for Nabal's men and Nabal's flock. They protected them from attacks from uh, other people. And so David feels that you know, Nabal surely is going to be kind towards him because David had already shown kindness uh, towards Nabal's men and flock and so on. So David sends a request saying, please can we have some stuff? Please give us some bread, some drink, things for my men. Well, Nabal rejects David's request. On the account of who is David? I don't know who David is. He's nobody of any significance as far as I'm concerned. And David, as you can imagine, is outraged. So David prepares now to attack Nabal and to, to finish him off. He's so cross with this response. After doing these good deeds to him, it's met with this um, very arrogant and ungrateful response. Well, Abigail, who is Nabal's wife, hears of the situation. So she wisely petitions David. And she basically sends this message to David saying, David, do you really want to do this? Nabal is a fool. You know, but don't go ahead and do this thing. And as a result of this, David relents. He realizes that actually, again, it would be a bad move for him to do this thing. Because of all that God has yet got planned for David, how would it have affected him as king if he'd have gone and done this, this thing and effectively murdered an innocent person? Yes, Nabal was being a fool, 
But actually he'd done no harm to David. And if David had taken his life and used his authority and his position and his power to do this, what kind of king would David be? How would he have been seen in the eyes of the nation? And so David, again, chooses to listen to to the advice of Abigail, this lady, and doesn't go through with it. And trusting God, once again, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, as we saw a moment ago. Nabal then is struck by the Lord about ten days later and dies. Nabal actually hears that David and his men were on the way and that that Abigail had prevented them. And he's so terrified that his heart became a stone. Um, But then about ten days later, he actually dies. The Lord deals with him. And then David sends for Abigail and asks her to be his wife. And so this is one of the wives of David. We'll look at uh, more of that in just a moment. <clears throat> well then, to round off the, the, the first Samuel, the last few chapters, in chapter 26, Saul's final pursuit, chasing after David again. Uh, and then in chapter 27, David once again goes down to Garth. This time he... he doesn't act mad or insane, uh, but he makes an alliance with Achish, king of Gath, and he uses it as an opportunity to attack Israel's oppressors. So while David is there, staying with Achish, um, David goes out during the day and comes back with um, spoil and with, with things that he's taken from the enemy. And Achish believes that he's been attacking the cities of Judah. So, of course, he's seeing that this rift between Saul and David is growing ever wider and deeper. But actually, in fact, what David had been doing was attacking Israel's enemies, but not leaving anyone alive to tell the story, to tell the tale. So as David's coming back and giving these things to Achash, Achash is delighted with this, because he's thinking that David is attacking Israel, which, of course, he wasn't. If you look at uh, the place here, this is a town called Ziklag. This is the place that David makes his home um, during this, this kind of campaign, this period of time. And David, uh, well, as you find that Ziklag was one of the cities of Israel um, that had been given to them, that they'd conquered. But it had fallen into Philistine hands. But no doubt uh, from the, this period as well, there were Jews still living there. Um, and David effectively kind of makes his home amongst them. There's a danger, you know, when we make our home amongst people who are happy to compromise. Because that will also potentially lead us into the same situation. In um, Alan Redpath's uh, book, uh, which really looks at the life of David, he talks about this. The book's called The Making of the Man of God. It's a really good study on these things. Uh, He just talks about the danger there is when we can go and dwell with people who are also happy to live amongst the enemy. Happy to make their camp there, just as the people of Ziglag were. Well, while all that's going on, we find that the Philistines then decide that they're going to launch an attack against Israel. Uh, another attack at this point. Now remember, Israel are not yet, or not at this point, under uh, the thumb of the Philistines. They're just two competing powers at this time. Samuel had delivered Israel from the yoke of bondage from the Philistines, but they remained a threat during this time. Well, there's this potential battle that's ensuing. Saul is very, very concerned. What's going to happen? Are we going to win? Have we got insufficient troops and so on? Well, Saul had already banned witches from the land, so medium, spiritists and so on. And yet he realises that his communication channels with God have been shut down by his own doing. And so he needs advice. So he decides to try and find a witch and he asks his men to find him somebody who could go and um, tell him what the outcome of the battle, somebody that could see into the future and so on. Well, 
There's this incredible account we read in chapter 28 that Saul gets there and this lady's there and they're presumably in this kind of tent or whatever and they're meeting. And this lady agrees to Saul's request um, to try and bring up the spirit of Samuel. Now, it's a strange account. And what is incredible is that as what seemingly is Samuel is brought back up again to speak through this medium to Saul. Saul never actually sees Samuel at this point. It's just hearing the, the message related to this lady. The lady herself is absolutely shocked and taken by surprise, which does lead you to, to the conclusion that what she was doing on most occasions was purely just fraud. She knew that she was intentionally deceiving people and so on. On this occasion, something happens that's way beyond her control. And Samuel um, speaks uh, to to Saul at this point and tells him that he effectively is going to die the following day in his battle. Uh, There are those that think it was just a a familiar spirit from a demonic point of view. um, There are uh, demons that will latch onto individuals. They have the knowledge of those persons and so on. Um, and they can provide uh, the impression that that person is speaking uh, through a medium or spirit or so on. Um, but uh, again, clearly things that are forbidden in God's word, things that we should avoid. Um, and of course, God reserves the right to tell the future. It's God alone that has said that he knows the end from the beginning. And when you start delving into these things, you're intruding into the office of God. Uh, God makes it very clear in his word. And these things should be avoided. Um, there was a, a funny occasion um, some years ago. Uh, Joy was working, and uh, a colleague of hers had a, a, an evening job to earn a little bit extra money uh, working uh, for a medium. And uh, one day she was at work and she said, I'm not feeling very well. She said, I don't think I'm going to go tonight. She said, I'd better give him a call. And I think I was on the phone with Joy at this point, or the part of the conversation. And I just said, well, there's no need to tell her because she'll know by now, surely. And she said, you don't need to. It's a great, you know, if you work for a medium, you don't have to ring in sick. Um, of course, it's nonsense uh, for much of it. And yet we mustn't play down the reality uh, that we are dealing with principalities and powers. Um, and the enemy does have the ability to work through people and to reveal things. Um, so anyway, this, this terrible situation saw really just, just a dismal end to a dismal career really at this point. Uh, he leaves the, this, this encounter with this witch. Um, knowing really that uh, tomorrow is going to be his last day. So then chapter 29 to 30, one of David's last great personal tests, as it were. David goes with Achish and out to this battle. So this is a very mixed up situation. We've got Saul and the armies of Israel and we've got the Philistines and David's now coming out with the Philistines to fight against Israel. And David must have been thinking, no doubt, what am I going to do? How do I get out of this? Well, the Lord provides a way. David goes out with Achish to fight with the Philistines. But the Philistine leaders reject him and send him home. Achish says, well, he's done nothing wrong. He's been great with me all the time he's been here. But the rest of the Philistine leaders don't trust David and they send him home. But while David arrives home back at Ziklag, he finds that everything has been taken. It's been uh, raided by the Amalekites and they've come and taken everything. The women, the children, all the stuff, all gone. Well, David and the men are heartbroken. You can imagine arriving home and your family's been kidnapped and taken away by a very cruel group of people. So they don't know what to do. They're, they're talking of lynching David, killing David, uh, his own men at this point, um, because of this situation. And we read in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters, 
But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. What a great scripture. Jerob was saying this morning about remembering verses and um, committing them to memory. Well, this one, 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. What a great verse. Whatever situation you're in, however desperate, however bad, encourage yourself in God. That's the place to go. We find that as a result of this, David then sets out after the Amalekites. Um, They recover everything and they bring it all back. Um, So this, this dreadful situation in just this moment is turned around as David puts his trust in God. And they come back and obviously everything is restored. Um, back to the place. Chapter 31 then reveals and gives us the details of the battle that takes place. And of course, King Saul dies. But along with King Saul, Jonathan, and David's closest friend, also dies in the battle as well. And that brings us to the end of First Samuel. So as we go through Second Samuel, and we're going to just pull up some highlights. It's again an incredible account that we have here. Um, the first 12 chapters really deal with some of David's triumphs. Um, the first period of time, it says David is as king of Judah for, for seven years, um, and then king of all Israel for 33 years. Uh, and then David's troubles, we see uh, family problems and then national problems, really, from chapter 13 uh, to the end of the book. So that's what we're going to briefly summarize and look at. So from this point, Saul is now dead. Israel is going to enter a period of civil war for about seven and a half years. Uh, from this point, Saul's son Ishbosheth is placed on the throne by Abner. Abner had been the captain of Saul's host. So he now places Saul's son on the throne, and part of Israel follow after Ishbosheth. And we read verse uh, 1 of chapter 3. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. Well, finally, Abner. This general, this chief general, is accused of a relationship with one of Saul's concubines, Baish-Besheth. And that was really the final straw at this point. So Abner then seeks an alliance with David. He's fed up of this this, uh, son of Saul. And so he goes to David. And we read, So do God to Abner and more also, except as the Lord has sworn to David, even so I do to him. To translate the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan, which was in the north, to Bathsheba, which is way down in the south. And he could not answer Abner a word again because he feared him. So this is Ishbosheth as Abner speaks to him saying, that's it, I've had enough. I'm going to now make sure that the kingdom is passed from Saul, the house of Saul, to David. So David demands a part of this agreement. Um, as Abner comes to David, he says, well, okay, I want my wife returned. David's wife had been taken by somebody else. That was Saul's daughter. Abner complies and Michael is then brought back to David. We read, And Abner had communication with the elders of Israel, saying, You sought for David in times past to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel out of the hand of the Philistines and out of the hand of all their enemies. So Abner aware that God has anointed and appointed David to be king. And so at this point, Abner then calls the the elders of the people of Israel and says, now it's time to follow David. David will be our king. So finally, David is made king over all Israel. What a long journey that had been. 
Joab, we find, kills Abner. Um, David is sickened by this act, actually. Um, and Job had done that to avenge the death of his own brother, who Abner had killed, not wanting to, but um, Abishi, Abner, uh, Joab's brother, had been chasing after Abner, and Abner warned him and said, leave off, don't chase me, I'm going to kill you if you keep coming. He kept coming, and Abner had killed him. Well, as a result of this, this uh, bitterness had festered with Joab, and then he takes opportunity and kills Abner. But uh, David publicly denounces this act. And in a funny way, it helps to unify the people because they realise that David didn't want Abner to die. David was looking to try and draw people together. And in a funny way, it helps to to unite the people under David. But again, what an incredible journey for David. All of that valley that David had gone through. David in Psalm 23 speaks of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, I wonder whether these thoughts and the, this experience he'd gone through were in his mind those things. Because for a long time, David had been in the valley of the shadow of death. You know, his life was, was in doubt. He didn't know what was going to happen. But of course, God had sustained him. God had brought him through. And, you know, and sometimes God takes us through those valleys in preparation for the things that he has for us. And we should never despair we should take our comfort and our courage in the Lord when we're in those situations. You know, God will not allow anything to happen to us that's not part of his plan for our lives. We've got to remind ourselves again and again that we've been bought at a price. That means we're his. We belong to him. It's in God's interest to look after his own property, which is what we are now. And God will always see that his will is done in our lives if we're just obedient and humble ourselves before him. Well, as we look at David's family, just to help piece some of these uh, links together. Um, David's father was Jesse, um, but his mother also, um, when Jesse had died, had another husband, um, Nehash, who effectively then David's stepfather. Uh, we find that it's from that line that we come down, and we have Joab. Okay, so David and Joab, this individual we just mentioned a moment ago, were actually related. Um, so it's interesting just to see those connections. We read then, Second Samuel chapter 5, Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron, and spoke, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou was he that ledest out and broughtest in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be captain over Israel. So the nation now acknowledging that, you know, well, even when Saul was our king, you were still the one that was effectively ruling the show. You were the one that led us out and led our armies and so on. So they're acknowledging David. So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron. And King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. In Jerusalem, he reigned 30 and three years over all Israel and Judah. So when is a box not a box? We move on in this uh, narrative as we go through. And this is a, an interesting situation and uh, lessons to be learned here. Well, a box is not a box when it's been set up by the Lord to represent something very, very significant. And in Samuel 2 Samuel 6, David decides to bring this box that's overlaid with gold, which we refer to as the Ark of the Covenant, he decides to bring it back to the city of David, which you and I know as Jerusalem. 
The ark, of course, had been the centerpiece of national worship. It represented the presence of God in their midst. It was a terrible day. We were looking at this at Bible study during the week when it was captured, when it was taken away by the Philistines. As the Lord had said uh, directly to Samuel as a young child, that God would do something that would cause the ears of the people to tingle. And of course, that's what happened, that the ark was taken. It was a dreadful thing for the nation. But now it had come back, of course, and it had stayed in this location. But this was another act, of course, from David's perspective of unifying or bringing the nation back together. The ark had already been that centerpiece. So David decides, let's bring the ark back to Jerusalem as well. Well, David takes 30,000 chosen men to the house of Abinadab in this place called Gibeah. Um, just to give you an indication of where we've gone here, the ark had resided at Shiloh. This had been the, the central point. This is where the tabernacle had been set up after Joshua had come into the land. When it's captured by the Philistines, uh, it comes all the way down here and it resides, first of all, Ashdod. They have their problems with the, um, their God falling over and so on. Um, if your God can fall over, you've got the wrong God. And then eventually the ark is brought down here to Garth and then eventually up here to Ekron. And then from here, they send it back to Beth Shemesh, uh, back into Israel, uh, because they have this uh, problem with hemorrhoids and all sorts of things that break out as a result of them having the ark. And so from Beth Shemesh, we read uh, back in 1 Samuel, the problem, they opened the ark, they looked at the law without the mercy of God uh, in the way, and many died there. Uh, and then finally, we find now this, the ark has journeyed to this place to Gibeah, and it's here now that David is coming to take the ark to bring it, this fair, relatively short journey, down to Jerusalem. Well, this man, Abinadab, whose home the ark had resided in, had two sons. One of them was named Uzzah, um, and the other, Ohio. The ark was placed on a cart. Wrong. It should never have been placed on a cart. And they set it off with music and rejoicing and so on. Ahio went out front, he was leading, and Uzzah was behind following. And we get to a point, let's just pick it up in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir, wood, even on harps and on psalteries, and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, uh, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God. And took hold of it for the oxen shook. So the, the cows that are carrying the ark stumbled a bit. And Uzzah puts out his hand to steady it. Very natural reaction, of course. Very normal response. But we're told, verse 7, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God smote him um, there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. So, the strange situation. Of course, we ask the question, why would God do this? Surely Uzzah was just trying to help. Wasn't it unfair? Well, of course... There's a, a bigger issue here. And Israel has simply forgotten the most important lesson that we need to learn about God. And that is quite simply that he is holy. It's such an easy thing for us to forget. We get so accustomed to the idea of God as our father, God as our friend, and so on, that we can sometimes forget that he is holy. 
And the trouble we have is trying to understand what that really means. You see, because of what the ark represented, God had given very special instructions on how to move it. There were to be the Levites only, uh, were to be the ones that would carry it. They were to have these poles that would be placed through the eyelets on the ark, and so on. It wasn't to be put on a cart. The Philistines had used a cart, but they didn't know God. They used a cart to send it back. But the children of Israel should have known better. They had very clear instructions. You know, God is so far above our ways, our thoughts and everything else. We can't even begin to truly understand what it means when we say that God is holy. In Hebrews 11 verse 6, we're told there, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is. It's just hard for us to grasp, but we've just got to believe that God is God. God is infinitely far above us. And of course, God is also sovereign. That means he's accountable only to himself. Again, we can't really comprehend these things. But that's the God that we serve. And what's happening here with the situation that we read about is they've forgotten to reverence and honour and worship God in the way that he deserves. Well, we then move into chapter 7. And this arguably is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. And that's a big claim to make, but you'll see why. Firstly, we find that the ark is brought to Jerusalem. It finally makes this journey. Uh, as it comes, there's great celebration and so on. And we read, it came to pass that when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within curtains within the tabernacle. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. Okay, note to self, don't just go speaking on God's behalf before checking in with God first. Because God will then tell Nathan, uh, Nathan, I want you to go back to David and tell him what I said, not what you thought was a good idea. Because Nathan here just speaks very presumptuously and doesn't consult God first. So Nathan then humbly has to go back to David and go, um, David, um, you know I said go ahead and do it? You haven't started, have you, I hope? Because... <laughs> Verse 8 tells us, Now therefore, so shall thou say unto my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and I have cut off all thy enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Look, let me ask you a question. How long is that kingdom to be established? Anybody? Forever. Agree? Is that what the text says? Okay. 
Verse 14. I will be his father, he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of man and with the stripes of the children of man. So judgment is promised if disobedience comes in. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever. How long? Anybody? Forever. Before thee. Thy throne shall be established. How long? Forever. Do you think God's trying to make a point here? According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. God makes it absolutely clear that this covenant that is being established with David is forever. Commentators and scholars will refer to this typically as the Davidic covenant. And it affects all that follows. And I mean literally all that follows. Everything in the scriptures is dependent really on this covenant. Everything in the history of mankind is also, one way or another, dependent on this covenant. It is a huge moment in scripture. As God then now says, through the line of David, his kingdom, this kingdom that's being established now for David, his throne, will be established forever. It's this divine confirmation of a throne in Israel and the perpetuality of the Davidic dynasty. I need to point out, of course, as we saw, that the covenant is unconditional. doesn't mean that judgment wouldn't come if disobedience came as well. But as God makes it very clear, he will not take away the blessings. There's, of course, messianic implications because we know that ultimately this is speaking of the son of David, the son of Abraham, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, these ideas that we find through scripture, the one who would ultimately sit on the throne of David. Now, to suggest that God has finished with Israel, that God has finished with the Davidic covenant, that God has finished with the throne of David, is to call God a liar. Because God makes it very clear here that this is to be forever. That Israel have to exist as a nation. That the throne of David has to exist. And the only way it can exist forever is if the Messiah himself ultimately sits on the throne of David. And of course, when we get to the New Testament, we find exactly that is confirmed to us. You see, this scarlet thread that we started when we back in January going through the Bible, we see the seed of the woman and the, the, the human race was to be redeemed. There would, be, there would come a saviour, a seed of the woman. From the human race. But then we get to Genesis and we find that that's now brought down to a nation, that this seed would come through a nation. And then we find with Jacob, it's narrowed down to a tribe. The tribe of Judah will be the one through whom the Messiah, this Savior, this seed of the woman would come. And now it's narrowed down to the family of David, that the Messiah would come through his family. The promise of David and his seed would be kings. Fulfilled, obviously, the prophecies that had gone on even before that. The Abrahamic covenant had promised blessings that there would be kings in Abraham's line. Of course, this is fulfillment of that as well. And to Judah, the great-grandson of Abraham, was given the explicit pledge that a promised ruler would come from him. And Samuel anointed David himself from Judah, of whom the Lord has said in 1 Samuel sixteen twelve, He is the one, David is the one, the man after God's own heart. And so the house to be built for David would be a royal house with a dynasty of kings, which of course we know from history took place. It would originate with him, but it would never end, because ultimately the king that will sit on that throne will be, as we said also, the Messiah. 
He's going to reign over the house of David forever. David obviously was aware of this incredible responsibility, his calling, his election by God, but also the, the theological significance of that election as part of the messianic line that would result in the divine descendant and king. You know, and we look in Psalms and we see the prophetic overtones as David speaks, uh, these words that David records for us and other um, psalm writers as well. Um, David attests again that the Messiah would be his descendant who would sit on the throne. Uh, many places in scripture we see this echoed all the way through. And the promise that the people of the Lord, David's kingdom, would have the land of their own uh, is again also confirmed at this point. It had been confirmed to Abraham and it's reiterated now to David. Um, just as we've seen back in Genesis 13, 15, 17 and so on. Uh, Deuteronomy 34 as well echoed again there. Uh, Deuteronomy 28 is another key chapter uh, that details these things. Um, and of course we know, as we said earlier, you know, that this chapter has such a significance today because this commitment that God made to David is being challenged by the authorities of the world that are saying that Israel don't have a place in the land. And ultimately, Antichrist will lead the nations of the world against Israel in direct challenge to this covenant that God has made with his people. Well, so many scriptures we could go through that look at the fact that the Messiah, David's greatest son, if you like, would be the one that would sit on the throne. It will be established. Luke one thirty two, Gabriel promises to Mary that David, uh, that Jesus would sit on the throne of David. We read there, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. Again, forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Well, if we look at the kingdom, the kingdom that David had during his time as king is highlighted there in yellow. You can see the area covered. There are also various vassal states that were subject uh, and servants to David during this time as well. In addition to that, there was others that acknowledge the Israelite sovereignty, uh, including the Aramaeans and Moabites, the Edomites and so on. Uh, we've talked about that previously and how ultimately that land also will be given to Israel. Well, then we move on to chapter 9 and we're reminded of the power and the, uh, the reality of these covenant blessings. David begins preparations for the temple. But meanwhile, David, of course, now the beneficiary of this covenant that we've just talked about, seeks to confirm a covenant that he'd made with Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan, Saul's son, and David have been close friends. And David wants to bless the descendants of Jonathan, as he promised to Jonathan he would do, to take after, uh, to take care of and things. And we find that this individual by the name of Mephibosheth um, is still alive. He's lame, he's had problems with his legs, um, but David invites him to come and eat at the king's table. Just like you and I have been invited. We, in a sense, uh, are crippled. We've been crippled by sin. But we've been invited, not because of anything that we've done, but purely on the basis of a covenant to come and eat at the king's table. And a wonderful picture, we could spend longer unpacking this, but it's a great picture of our own lives here. It's a great picture of grace. Again, nothing that had been done by Mephibosheth to earn this blessing. Okay. Chapter 11 through 12. A very, uh, another dark portion, as it were, in uh, David's time. 
The situation, of course, with David and Bathsheba. The army go out to battle. David stays at home. He ends up going for a walk in the evening. Happens to notice Bathsheba. She's taking a bath. She's a very beautiful lady. And he takes far more notice of her than he should. We're told in scripture that desire conceived give birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. Exactly what occurs in this occasion. Well, as a result, Bathsheba becomes pregnant. David is sent for her and so on. So David calls her husband, Uriah, who's out fighting with the army. He calls him back home. But Uriah refuses to go home and spend the evening with his wife. Instead, he stays outside the palace. David can't understand why. And eventually Uriah says, how can I go home to my wife when the armies of Israel are out there fighting? He's uh, clearly concerned about his duty. Well, as a result, David sends a note to Joab and says, put Uriah right on the front line and then retreat. And the enemy end up killing Uriah. So that's problem solved, isn't it? No one needs to know. It's all done. Of course, in our own lives, we may not be in situations quite as dramatic as that. But many occasions, I'm sure, there's situations that we would just like to sweep things under the carpet. No one needs to know about them. It's okay. And if no one knows, then it's no problem. Well, that's not the way it is. Of course, God sees everything. 2 Samuel 12, picking up verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveller unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. But he took the poor man's lamb and dressed it, for the man, that's not clothing it, that's preparing it for food, obviously. And for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man that has done this thing shall surely die. Well, of course, Nathan had been sent by the Lord to speak this to David. David says, he shall restore the lamb fourfold. Because he did this thing. And because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. And imagine at this moment David's heart sinks as he suddenly realises he's been found out. God knows. David, by the way, does pay fourfold. And this reference to fourfold comes from the book of Exodus. If a man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ass and four sheep for a sheep. So David, quoting the law, this is what's to happen. Well, David did steal a sheep. As it were, the, Uriah, the life of Uriah was taken. And according to Exodus 22.1, as we see, he must pay fourfold. And indeed, David does. Uriah died, he was murdered. And as a response to this, four of David's children are murdered. We find that the child, first of all, of this union dies. The Lord allows the child to die. Then later we'll find that Amnon dies, then Absalom dies, and then finally Adonijah also dies. God means what he says and says what he means. We could spend a long time, and in many ways it would love you to do so, to look at Psalm 51. What an incredible psalm of repentance, as David realizes. The, the key part of that to me is where David turns to God and says, Against you only have I sinned. Yes, we've sinned against other people and all the things that we've done wrong. But in comparison 
Because God is holy, the greatest sin is always against God himself. And David recognizes this and pleads for God not to take his Holy Spirit away from him. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor. And he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son, for thou did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. So God warning David that there will be judgment for what he's done. Well, that then leads us to a big block of Second Samuel from chapter 13 through to 20, which deals with this revolt of Absalom, his son, Absalom. Just so, uh, again, we just get the, the picture of uh, David's family, as it were. We've got the wives, you can see there, of David, as we have them listed in Scripture, um, and their sons accordingly. Uh, these will be in the slides, so you can look at this uh, and so afterwards. Of course, Bathsheba, the first son of Bathsheba, dies. Uh, is this child that's born from this union at this point. But her second son is Solomon, and then she has Nathan. Both of these are key. The lines that we find, the genealogies in Matthew and in Luke, will come respectively from these two children, um, and so on. But this is the, the son that we're interested in here. This is the son of the wife of David, uh, this Machiah, uh, who's the daughter of the king of Geshur. Um, well, he also has, Absalom has a sister um, by the same mother, a girl, a daughter by the name of Tamar. And don't get confused, by the way, because Absalom also has a daughter called Tamar, um, but he has a sister by the same name. And it's the sister that's the one that's the, the one we should be aware of at this point. There was a, a number of other um, children by concubines and so on as well. But Okay, so the situation is Amnon, David's son, rapes Tamar, his half-sister. As a result, Absalom, who's Tamar's full brother, Absalom then kills Ammon to get revenge on Tamar, or to avenge her. Um, Absalom then flees and he's banished um, from David. But David mourns the loss of both of his sons. Because not only did he lose Amnon, who's then killed, but he also loses Absalom, who's now banished as well. Joab then comes up with his plan to bring Absalom home again. And yet David still refuses to see him. And this then takes another two years. The first part was a, a three-year span. Finally, Absalom is brought before David. But then Absalom actively seeks to undermine David. So this first part here, he's banished for three years. And then here there's another two years. So five years go past without David and Absalom actually seeing each other. All of this time, this anger and this bitterness in Absalom's heart is festering. And finally, Absalom is before, before, before David. But then, from this point on, Absalom seeks to try and undermine the king. David, as a result of the plotting of Absalom, eventually is forced to actually flee Jerusalem himself. Absalom takes uh, the palace and David's concubines and he erects a tent on top of the palace and takes the concubines in there. And the whole of the city is aware of what's going on, just as the prophecy by Nathan had said. We then find Ahithophel as David's trusted counsellor betrays David and gives counsel to Absalom. Now this is one of those strange things. Why would this man that had been David's trusted and close ally through this time suddenly turn his back on David? Well, the reason was that Ahithophel was Bathsheba's granddad. And for a long time, no doubt, he'd been looking for a way to settle the score. 
And possibly already he'd been giving advice to Absalom. But now Absalom comes to the fore and Ahithophel then sides with Absalom. Psalm 41 is a, a psalm that we find written in response to this. And David there says, Yea, my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But all of this had been on account of David's sin. So Absalom then goes out to battle against David. Absalom is then finally killed. He gets caught in a tree. He's got long hair. He's going through. His mule goes under a tree and he gets caught in the bowels of it. And he ends up uh, being killed there. David returns to Jerusalem. And once again, Israel unites under him as a king. Very dark, sordid story. But uh, incredible detail and clarity were given of those events. But then chapter 21, we read of these famines and covenants. There's a famine in the land. And David goes to the Lord for three years and says, Lord, why? Why are we in this mess? Why is there a famine? And the Lord makes it clear. It's because Saul had broken the covenant that Israel had made with the Gibeonites. Now you remember way back in the book of Joshua, chapter 9, the people of Gibeon had made this deceitful, admittedly, but covenant with Israel. And Israel had sworn to protect them. Well, Saul, in his zeal, He decided that he was going to try and destroy them. Well, as a result of this, God then sends his famine on the land. God holds covenants very, very dearly indeed. And that's a good thing for you and I. Because our position, our eternity, is on the basis of a covenant that he has made with the blood of his own son. David then held seven of Saul's family to account and they're put to death as a result of this thing. See, God delights in keeping covenants. Well, chapters 22 and 23, we get a conclusion in a sense of this um, life of David. I just want to read you just a small snippet of this because it's just so wonderful. Uh, This is a a voice of experience, a voice that has seen so many things go on in his life, so many ups, so many downs. But the conclusion is this. David spoke unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. And he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The God of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my saviour. Thou savest me from violence. I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. When the waves of death compass me, The floods of the ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God. And he did hear my voice out of his temple. And my cry did enter into his ears. What a wonderful God we have. That's the same God that you and I serve. That's the same God that tomorrow morning when we wake up and it's one of those Monday mornings and we've got to get out of bed and go about our days. And we think, oh, I'm just getting by, I'm surviving here. We need to remind ourselves that in our distress, we call upon the Lord. We cry to God. He will hear our voice. His ears are open. What a wonderful promise. God is the same yesterday, today, forever. God is without partiality. It's a wonderful thing. And so, to conclude this book... We get this situation, the threshing floor of Aruna. We read, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. 
And he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. Count how many people we have. And the king said to Joab, the captain of the host which was with him, go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Bethsheba, from north to the south, and number you the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said unto the king, now the Lord thy God add unto thy be unto the people how many soever they be, a hundredfold, and that the eyes of my Lord the king may see it. But why does the Lord my king delight in this thing? Notwithstanding, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host. And Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And jumping to verse 10, we read, David's heart smote him after that he numbered the people. He realized this was a pride exercise on his part. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. For when David was up in the morning, uh, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say unto David, Thus says the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David and told him, and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in the land? Or will thou flee three months before thine enemies, while they pursue thee? Or that there be three days pestilence in the land? Now advise, and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed. And there died of the people of Dan, even to Bathsheba, 70,000 men. Just see what pride can do. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, It is enough, stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Aruna the Jebusite. And Aruna said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stopped from the people. And Aruna said unto David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good unto him. Behold, here be oxen for the burnt sacrifice, and threshing instruments, and other instruments of the oxen for the wood. And all these things did Aruna, as the king gave unto the king. And Aruna said unto the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. And the king said unto Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which does cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. So this is a great lesson in scripture. Firstly, don't play games with God. God cannot be played with. God, we can't trivialize. We're told that we will reap what we slow. So when we have to, God is not mocked. David allows his pride to to run away with him here. And innocent people suffer. You know, how many times do we do things thinking that it's okay, that nobody sees? Again, the David Bathsheba is that we think we can sweep it under the rug. But God requires account. It says in Ecclesiastes, God requires an account of the things that are past. You know, we're not talking necessarily about 
the judgment for sin. Of course, we know that because of the cross, our sin is paid for. But that doesn't mean that God won't still chastise us as a loving father so that we learn these lessons. We mustn't just look at these things and think, well, I'm glad that was back then. We shouldn't mess with God. God is calling us to be holy, to be separated from the things of this world. He's paid the highest possible price. He's calling us as a group of people here to be obedient to him. Again, David's given the opportunity of just taking all of this and using it. And he says, no, I'm not going to take an offer to God something that didn't cost me anything. What does your relationship with God cost you? What is it costing you? Is it costing you relationships with people of this world that otherwise you could befriend? Is it costing you of your own hobbies and pleasures? The things that you could choose to do in your spare time? What is it costing you? What are we really truly giving up for God? That we may offer to him a sacrifice that's pleasing to him. And we're told David built an altar there unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. This location becomes the place where the temple will later be built by Solomon. And of course it's believed to be the place today where the Dome of the Rock stands. Certainly the same area within a, a matter of a few hundred yards. And it will be the place where eventually the Messiah's temple will stand as well. If we were to look at that on a map of the area, Mount Zion, uh, you can see there is on the left hand side the Mount of Olives on the right. And we have this ridge system going up through here. The Kidron Valley is also on the right hand side there you can see. Uh, another valley, the Teropian Valley on the other side, and the Hinnom Valley on the low side. Um, but this area is the area that we have. So Salem or Jerusalem typically uh, was there. The threshing floor of Arun as you go up was there. And then finally the top, the peak, is the place where Abraham took his son to be offered up as a sacrifice. Of course, God intervened on that occasion and said, no, God will provide himself a lamb. And 2,000 years later, God did provide himself as the lamb that would take away the sin of the world at this place at the top, this place of Golgotha. But this is the same area. This is all the area today we look at as Jerusalem. And uh, again, this is where the Temple Mount is. And again, just outside the city walls is where we have Golgotha. That brings us to the end of this book. Um, Next week we'll pick up from here and we'll see these Thoughts and ideas and things continued. Let's uh, bow our hearts. Well, Father, as we survey the, the wonder of your word, we see so many lessons there for us to learn. But, Father, the greatest lesson, of course, is that you are holy. And that because you are holy, you want us to be holy also. Father, we pray you do that work in us. Lord, whatever it takes. Lord, we don't want to just say we're Christians, but not have it cost us anything. We don't want to just go through the motions of coming to church on a Sunday or maybe coming to midweek meetings and not have it cost us anything. Lord, we want to give you of the best that we have. And so, Lord, help us to know how we should surrender all to you, how we should give up everything, how we can be obedient, Lord. We need, even in that, your grace. We need your spirit to work in us. Father, help us to realize that we can't Hide under the rug, hide under the carpet, the things, Lord, that go on in our own lives, the things that no one else sees but you. For, Lord, you will hold us to account. But, Lord, we thank you too 
and for the incredible promise that we have in your word that unlike with Saul, you have given us your Holy Spirit forever. And Lord, we thank you. Lord, we see David's heart plead for you not to take your spirit away from him. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit has been given to your church forever. Lord, help us to fellowship with your spirit. Not to grieve your spirit by the things that we think, say or do. But Lord, to be a joy to you by the way we live our lives. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.